0: You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Natalie Nichols. I'm the director of RSA Global, and I'm delighted to welcome you to today's lunchtime event. It's really my great pleasure to introduce Roman Krasnarek. Roman is a social philosopher whose books include Empathy, The Wonder Box and How to Find Fulfilling Work have been published in more than 20 languages. He's the founder of the world's first Empathy Museum and of the Digital Empathy Library. He's also a former political scientist and taught at Cambridge and Essex universities. And he's a founding faculty member of the School of Life and has been named by the Observer as as one of Britain's leading philosophers. In his new book... Carpe Diem, the vanishing art of seizing the day, Roman offers a timely new roadmap for inventing democratic politics in the 21st century. He calls it Carpe Diem politics and argues that we need a new politics that focuses on mass action to seize opportunities, spontaneous mobilisation and hedonistic revelry. In an age of digital distraction where we're more interested in, in being political spectators than active political citizens we need an energetic pulse of carpe diem to catapult us out of apathy into a reinvigorated progressive democratic era. So we're delighted to have you with us today, Roman. So without any further ado, over to you.
1: So we are in the midst of a grand political tragedy. And it's not one that you'll read about in most of the newspapers. And the tragedy is this. It's that representative democracy as a system of government is dying. And that might seem unlikely to you because here we are in the midst of the media circus of elections and referenda and party manoeuvring. But if you step back from the political noise in any one country and look at the big picture, Western democracy is under extreme pressure. And the evidence is compelling. It's not just that over the past two decades we've seen a long-term decline in trust and confidence in government and traditional parties and declining uh, party membership. It's not just that we've seen the rise of anti-system authoritarian populist politicians from Donald Trump to Marine Le Pen. It's crucially that we are losing faith in democracy itself in democratic norms and values. And I want to show you one of the most, I think, important and confronting graphs in contemporary political analysis. A study in the Journal of Democracy recently asked people in Europe and the United States whether they thought it was essential to live in a democracy. And they divided the responses... <laughs> by birth cohort, by the decade in which people were born. And the results were astonishing. That in the United States, for example, people born in the 1930s, around 75% of them thought it was essential to live in a democracy. But go through the generations, by the time you reach people born in the 1980s, only around 30% of people believe that it's essential to live in a democracy. There's a steep generational decline. There's a decline in Europe as well, not quite so steep what it tells us is that people don't really care as much as they did about whether they live in a democratic society. And that raises an important question. How do we save democracy from its impending failure? How do we restore faith in the democratic ideal? Now, I have a slightly unusual solution to this. To look to the future of democracy, I think we can find the solutions in the past, in ancient philosophy. And in particular, in one of the most ancient philosophical ideals in the Western cultural tradition. Carpe diem, seize the day. Now, if that seems particularly unlikely to you, I'd like to make the case. Um, And I think the place to start is thinking about where that phrase comes from. Carpe diem, seize the day, actually goes back to a poem written by the Roman lyric poet Horace in 23 BC. And the last couple of lines of the poem really sum up what it's all about. He said... Even as we speak, envious time flies past. Seize the day and leave as little as possible for tomorrow. And in those couple of lines, he really summed up one of the great questions of the existential journey. How should we live in the face of the reality of our mortality? How do we live a life without regret? And it's extraordinary, I think, that that ideal, those two Latin words, still retain such extraordinary resonance in popular culture. The actress, Judi Dench, had carpe diem tattooed onto her wrist for her 81st birthday. You may have come across the phrase in Dead Poets Society, where Robin Williams, playing the inspiring English teacher Mr Keating, tells the pupils at his 1950s New England boys' school, "He says, we're food for worms, lads, because each and every one of us in this room is going to stop breathing, grow cold, and die. Carpe diem. Seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. And I think that the wisdom of Horace's ideal is absolutely urgent today, partly because it's an antidote to this, the age of distraction. We're checking our phones, on average, 110 times a day. We're caught in a state of continuous partial attention. We've become spectators of life on the screen, rather than living it directly itself. Carpe Diem can help us get beyond the screen out and our eye gadgets but it is also a solution to the crisis of democracy. And to understand why that is, you need to understand a bit more about the meaning of carpe diem itself. Now, the most common translation of it is seize the day, but it can also be translated as harvest the day, or enjoy the day, or pluck the day, maybe a little less grasping those different meanings. And I became very curious when writing my new book, Carpe Diem Regained, about the meanings of carpe diem. So I put together a research team, and we did a raid on Oxford University's Bodleian Library, and looked at manuscripts, hundreds of manuscripts going back over the past 500 years, to see how people have used these phrases, carpe diem, or seize the day, seize the moment. And we looked in everything from contemporary newspapers to Reformation church sermons. And what we found was a pattern, that over time, five different interpretations of seizing the day have emerged, five different ways that we've thought about grasping the most of existence in the face of the shortness of life. And I call them opportunity, spontaneity, presence, hedonism, and politics. And to understand how carpe diem, this ancient Horatian ideal, can feed into democratic renewal, we need to understand all five of these and understand how carpe diem can take us from the personal to the political and understand also that each of these have been faced by cultural hijackers. So let me tell you a bit about them. So the first way of thinking about seizing the day is the idea of an opportunity. Taking a window of opportunity that may be lost and disappear forever. Whether it's the chance to change career or rescue a crumbling relationship or even to call a snap general election if you happen to be Prime Minister. (laughs) And if you go through back copies of the Times newspaper for the past 200 years, 75% of references to the terms Carpe Diem or Seize the Day have been about seizing a window of opportunity. This meaning... And it's interesting to think about the meaning of the word opportunity itself. It actually goes back to another Latin phrase, ob portum veniens, which means coming towards a port. And it originally referred to a favorable wind that would blow a ship into harbor. So you can think of an opportunity as a wind blowing to your advantage. And the question is, are you going to hoist your sails and catch that wind? Or are you so afraid of being dashed upon the rocks that you never raise those sails at all? The problem, though, is that the old ideal of seizing opportunities has been hijacked by consumer culture. Just do it has essentially come to mean just buy it. It's been hijacked by Black Friday shopping sprees with their Carpe Diem messaging. You know, while stocks last, when it's gone, it's gone. It's been hijacked by the instant click of one click one hit online shopping. And I doubt Horace would have thought that Carpe Diem was all about getting a great bargain down at the forum. We need to do better than that. But this is the first kind of seizing the day, seizing an opportunity, and it's under pressure from the hijack of consumerism. The second way of thinking about carpe diem is as spontaneity, throwing plans and routines to the wind and becoming more experimental in the way we live. We were particularly good at this back in the Middle Ages, and that was expressed um, most essentially in carnival culture. Of course, there was death and destitution and plague and pestilence, but people had a carpe diem spontaneity Express their spontaneous selves in ways that we can barely imagine today. You know, even monks would take to the dance floor and spend the night dancing away in wooden clogs. Um, one of the challenges, though, is today that our spontaneous selves has been hijacked by our culture of hyper-scheduled living and time management. Just do it has really become just plan it. We're so busy filling up our electronic calendars that we've got no time left for spontaneous action. We are so busy using clever time management techniques to try and fend off all those emails and notifications and, and updates and tweets that we spend all our time becoming more and more efficient, more and more productive, trying to squeeze more and more in. But that time management ideology doesn't really liberate us for spontaneous action. It just gets us fitting in more and more and doing more stuff. So this is a serious hampering on spontaneity. A third kind of season of the day is carpe diem as presence, the idea of living in the here and now, being in the moment. Now, there's different ways of doing this, of course. Mindfulness meditation is one of them, which can bring you into the now. Psychologists also talk about flow experience, the idea that you might be so engaged in an activity, like a high-speed basketball game, that you lose all sense of time or sense of future and past. You are just there in the present moment. You're in the zone. And as the psychologist Mahai Chingson Mahai says the expert on flow experience, this is very different from sort of calm, mindful meditation. The problem, though, is that mindfulness has become so dominant in the last two decades that it is starting to hijack the carpe diem ideal. Just do it has become just breathe. (laughs) The problem here is that this dominance means that we're losing touch with different varieties of ways of being in the present moment, such as flow experience, and mindfulness is also pushing out our connection with these other forms of seizing the day, such as spontaneity and seizing opportunities. In fact, this is a huge shift in the cultural understanding of carpe diem. Go back a century and ask someone what seize the day meant to them. They would never have said it's about being in the present moment. They would have said it's about seizing opportunities, most likely. Ask people today. Around one in five people associate carpe diem with being in the here and now. That's a big shift, and that's a big hijacking. A fourth form of seizing the day hedonism. Particularly in the 17th century, this is what people thought Carpe Diem was all about. Now, of course, hedonism has quite a bad reputation today. We associate it with binge drinking and train spotting style heroin overdoses. Um, But in the Carpe Diem tradition, it's much more virtuous. It's not about overindulgence. It's about exploring the senses, whether through free love or gastronomic extravagance It's about getting back in touch with the world, touching it, tasting it, feeling it. One of the challenges, though, here is that this hedonistic ideal of carpe diem has been hijacked by 24-7 digital entertainment. Just do it has really become just watch it. We are now engaged in pleasures which are vicarious, which are second-hand, which are filtered through those eye gadgets which we spend seven and a half hours on each day Uh, on average. And even more frightening, I think, is the fact that the biggest digital hijacker or the biggest, biggest screen hijacker is not you texting on your phone or playing video games. It's actually a very old screen hijacker. It's called television. TV still now takes up half of our screen time, partly because it's so much easier to watch it, like on your commute on the way home, on your iPad. The average Western European and North American watches TV for around three hours a day. Now, that means by the time you're 75 you'll have watched TV for around nine years continuously if you put it all together. Even if you watch for just one hour a day, you'll have watched three years of TV in your life. Of course, there's fantastic TV programs uh, on every day, from nature programs to political analysis shows. But if you're interested in carpe diem, TV probably isn't the way to do it. If I said to you, seize the day here and now, it's unlikely you'd pick up a remote control and start flicking through the channels, right? Because we all know it's quite a passive form of experience. There's a big difference between tangoing with a friend and, you know, watching tangoing on Strictly Come Dancing. Now, these four forms of carpe diem don't sound very political, do they? And indeed, the carpe diem tradition has traditionally been thought of as being about private life, about the individual sphere, rather than the public sphere, our actions as public citizens. But there is a fifth form of seizing the day, which is politics, political carpe diem. And this is about movements based on mass mobilisation which harness the power of the four different ways of seizing the day I've been talking about. Opportunity, presence, spontaneity and hedonism. And raises them from the individual to the collective level in order to achieve political change. And throughout history we have seen these carpe diem inspired movements shift the social and political landscape. The demonstrations that helped bring down the wall, the Berlin Wall in 1989 were full of seizing opportunities on a mass scale, but they were also about spontaneous mobilization, which brought people into the present moment, and they were also full of hedonistic revelry alongside very serious political intent. It's as if the protesters had horrors whispering into their ears. Other movements you can think of, the gay rights movement that emerged in San Francisco in the 1970s, the anti-capitalist movement, Uh, in this country, in Europe, and other places in the early noughties. They've all been filled with the spirit of carpe diem. In a way, they're filled with the spirit of medieval carnival, which was not just about dancing the night away in your wooden clogs, but was also intently anti-authoritarian in nature. Peasants were dressed up as peasants and as priests and lords in mockery of their masters. Um, In the Americas from around 1600, slave revolts happened at carnival time. And I think what's interesting is that in the last couple of decades, we've seen carpe diem politics really coming to life. We are living in an age of mass social protest, which we have not seen since the 1960s. This exists alongside the declining faith in democratic norms. It's very interesting. A study at Columbia University looked at over 800 examples of mass protest in more than 80 countries and showed a steady rise since 2006 of mass protests on issues ranging from economic justice to failures of political representation. And in fact, 37 of these protests had over 1 million people take to the streets in France, in India, in Chile, and other countries. And what's really, I think, very fascinating is that so many of these movements have been powered and energised by that collective carpe diem political spirit. Think of the Occupy movement, which burst onto the scene in Wall Street in September 2011, within six weeks, it had spread to 951 cities in 82 countries. Think of the Podemos citizens' movement in Spain, which was built on the Carpe Diem protests of the indignados, the indignant ones, as they occupied places like the Puerta del Sol in Madrid. But of course, Carpe Diem politics hasn't just been monopolized by the left or democratic forces. Also, the right has been listening to Horace as well, the Tea Party in the United States, of course, put on protests, mass demonstrations where people would dress up in carnivalesque 18th century garb um, or sometimes wear hats with tea bags hanging off uh, the sides. But I think in general the real space where carpe diem politics has been happening has been amongst progressive uh, movements on the left and those with strong democratic values. And this is absolutely essential today because we are at a moment of extraordinary political flux and political opportunity. And I believe that what history shows is that grassroots political movements, whether they are campaigning on climate change or trying to fight against the rise of far-right extremism or trying to organize against a headlong rush for a hardline Brexit at any costs, they will have much more success in their endeavors if they tap into the power of carpe diem politics. This is just what the pink hats in the anti-Trump women's movement were doing earlier this year. Half a million people on the streets of Washington. Five million people around the world. They were embodying Horace and, in a way, updating Horace for the 21st century, shifting us from the singular carpe diem to the plural carpamos diem. Let's seize the day together. And this is very important for democracy because we can't think of democracy just about, ticking a box uh, at the ele- you know, on, on election day or in a referendum. There is a long tradition of democracy being deepened by civil society action. It is participation which brings the lifeblood to democracy. It gives it energy. It gives it legitis- legitimacy. It helps hold politicians to account and helps spread rights. The difficulty, though, with this carpe diem politics is partly because we're so busy with the problems of the hijacking, we're so busy just buying it, just planning, just watching, just breathing, that there's, you know, we're so distracted from the potentials of carpe Diem politics. But there's three other big problems that we face. One is the danger of mobilizing without organizing. It's all very well to use clever social media campaigns to bring tens of thousands of people onto the street, but as the writer, political writer uh, Paul Mason's pointed out, horizontalism can stage a great demo, but it doesn't know what it wants. There's no substitute for the hard graft of face-to-face organizing and strategizing that has made movements like the landless movement in Brazil or social movements in Spain so successful. The second problem is that Carpe Diem movements face the danger of failing to engage with the state. This is arguably the problem with what happened to the Occupy movement. Their great slogan was, Occupy everything, demand nothing. But as wise political strategists will probably tell you, that isn't necessarily the best way to achieve success. They resolutely decided not to issue concrete cl- political demands, such as radical tax reforms or reforming campaign financing. And I think it's clear that they would have been much more successful if they'd followed the lead For example, the women's movement that emerged in the 1970s and had a few clear propositional demands, like the women's movement had around uh, reproductive rights or equal pay. But there's a third problem that they face, which is this. They're outsiders against the system. Social movements have always had this problem. Of course, it's a lot easier to get people to turn up and vote than to actually organize them and mobilize them and keep them energized and fight from outside that system where there are all the obstacles of police intimidation, sometimes military intimidation in some countries, and, of course, the fact that you may well be ignored. I bet there's a lot of people in this room who have been on political marches where the politicians have completely (laughs) ignored what they said and what they did. But let us remember the power through history of social movements. As the political scientist and anthropologist James Scott has written, The great emancipatory gains for human freedom have not been the result of orderly institutional procedures, but of disorderly, unpredictable, spontaneous action cracking open the social order from below, from the suffragettes in the early 20th century to the civil rights movement in the United States. These are the kinds of movements that have been the lifeblood of democracy uh, since the 19th century, I believe. And we need to put our faith in them, just as they put their faith in Horace. So if we stand back and look at the big picture, I've put it all together on what I call the carpamos Diem Mandala. <laughs> Around the outside, you see the five forms of seizing the day that I've been talking about. In the middle are the twin existential drives, which are behind Carpe Diem behavior, our desire for freedom, for agency, for autonomy, and the reality of death, the fact that the clock is tick- ticking and we may not live forever. And in the middle are the barriers to seizing the political day from the cultural hijackers to failing to engage with the state, being an outsider against the system, and mobilizing without organizing. But I deeply believe that carpe diem politics can offer us a new era of democratic renewal. And for all those younger generations who are losing their faith in democratic values and democratic systems, if we are going to restore their faith, we have to make them understand that carpe diem politics is part of politics and should be part of politics itself. It can help create a politics which is full of energy and vitality and true to the grand vision that goes back to Horace. And that's why I believe that in the 21st century, we need a new ambition, an ambition which involves carpe diem politics, which is about shifting from carpe diem to to seizing the day together, because that is what real democracy looks like. Thank you very much.
0: Roman, thank you very much for that. Uh, When I read read the chapter on the just do it has become just by, I giggled at every every one of those phrases. Um, And it felt very pertinent to where we are today. In the book, you talk about the rise of movements, as you you just have here, uh, and that certainly in the 1980s and with the fall of the Berlin Wall, it was cultural and kind of festival, carnival type events that created this new space for public dissent, as it were. And then we moved to the Occupy movement, which was very different, um, that was very much generated by people being angry at the system, but as you say, didn't have the ask. I mean... So I suppose to play back the question that you're asking to so one of the barriers, has mobilisation displaced organisation? Um, how do we use all of this energy that we have had from Occupy, which, you know, in, and in the book you say what, it, what Occupy has achieved is to change the discourse about neoliberal economics. And that there has been a change, at least in our perspective, of how economics and how the system serves the 1% or, and not the 99%. But even I would struggle to say it's done probably more than that. So how do we harness this energy that, that we have with the Women's March, with Black Lives Matter, with the Arab Spring even, towards something that actually changes the system socially, politically, economically?
1: A big question. Um, I think that certainly it's true that elements of the carnivalesque, which were part of those anti-capitalist protests around 2000, late 90s, early 2000s, were incredibly important in galvanizing people. And that things like the Occupy Movement didn't quite embody as much of that. But I think that there is a hunger for political action on a mass scale. The question is, how do you harness it? As you say, there there is some issue around whether we are mobilizing at the expense of organizing, because it is so much easier than in the past to get hundreds of thousands of people onto the streets. Now, a lot of people say, well, look, the problem here is that so many social movements concentrate on digital mobilization. It's all about slacktivism rather than activism. It's about clicking an online petition or sharing a video. Um, But I think what's really interesting is that if that slacktivism thesis is right, the amount of protest on the streets should have been in decline since the Internet age because we're so busy just sharing videos. But no, the opposite has happened. In fact... Social mobilization has increased because, in fact, organizations like Avaz and other big online movements are really very good at getting people onto the streets. My daughter came with me to a climate change march, I remember, a year or two ago, and she spent, she's eight years old, and she spent the time dancing to funky disco music next to the Avaz truck. But of course, then there's still the problem of how do you achieve change? I think what's really important here is recognizing that we are in an age of loneliness and an age of individualism. People feel isolated for different kinds of reasons. And there is a hunger for community. And that's why movements need to provide community. This is what Occupy did very well. They need to provide hedonism. They need to give people a good time. The problem with, I think, a lot of the anti-Brexit protests that have been going on is you go along to a protest meeting And they're full of these sort of boring speeches from bad microphones and then everybody sort of wanders off afterwards. Where's the party spirit? I remember being at the J18 anti-capitalist protest on June 18, 1999 uh, in Liverpool Street and it was a massive party. People, in fact, we were given masks like we were in the Venice Carnival and everybody had to follow the colour of their different masks and we split into four groups And I think we need to be doing more of that. And I think once you get a taste for that, you start seeing part of who you are as a collective being. It's about helping us shift from the individual um, to the collective.
0: So I think if I understand rightly, you're saying that in order for us to get to a point where we're able to influence the system enough, and that means having a coherent narrative about the changes that we want to see, we need to feel like we are one community. At the moment, we're a set of different individuals manifesting our disapproval um but we're not necessarily coming together
1: yeah because we know the community is broken down we need to reforge community we need to reforge belonging and that is a struggle for social movements to do that occupy was very good i think at, at doing that but you cannot go around failing to propose any changes
0: so this leads on this leads me on to my second question um which we talked a little bit a little about a a little bit about earlier um, so, the question we're asking here, and you, and you said it at the beginning, was, you know, representative democracy is dying, which sounds quite sad. And that, the graph was incredibly stark, actually. Um, and I was sitting there thinking, I can't believe people would have answered that they didn't think it was important. So, what does that mean for how I see the world, but even yet how other people see the world? Um, is it that democracy is not crumbling because of inaction, but, it, but because we are unable to find some common ground? So <coughs> there are kind of two points that I want to expand on this. So politically, it seems that our discourse is dominated by special interest groups. And so the gerrymandering means that our political parties are being pulled further and further apart. And it's really difficult for the electorate and for society to see any commonality between what they are trying to propose and what they, how they see society being for everybody and then civically we're also being pulled apart because the media has changed so much that we're listening to people that are like ourselves so we are reinforcing the opinions that that we may have um, and our individual realities (coughs) but to the neglect of a common reality and that again prevents us from having a healthy debate and finding some common ground so, you know, practically, how do you bridge Obama and the Tea Party? What is the bridge between those? How do you bridge the Tory discourse and the Labour discourse? That's, I suppose that's my question. Or, or is it that you end up having Emmanuel Macron and his En Marche party, which is completely a new way of, of working? Because yeah, ha, ha, how do we do that? How do we bridge it? Yeah. Where do we find this common ground? Yeah, well, I think the first part
1: of the question, which is, you know, what are the explanations for that decline of democratic faith across the generations, which of course feeds into this, are quite broad. I mean, I think it's partly about the failure of traditional parties in the existing system to deal with big global problems. Austerity, terrorism, migration, climate change, and so on. It's also because the economic model which has sustained representative democracy is itself dying too. The idea that continuous economic growth can just go on forever and sustain the state and welfare systems and all these things which have held and prevented the inequalities which can tear us apart, that's going as well because we are on not an upward curve of economic growth. You know, growth is an S-curve, and we're at the top of the S. It is levelling off, and it's unlikely that it's going to be able to be sustained as it has done over the past 30 years. Um, but then there is this issue, as you say, of common ground and division, and I've spent the last 15 years trying to think about this through the lens of empathy. And I think it's a helpful way of thinking about it. Because in an era where inequalities are growing, where there are these divides partly around not only class, but issues of race and religion and so on, how do we find that common ground, say, between the Tea Party and Obama? I think it's about I mean, being able to step into the shoes of the other. Because, as you say, we are so locked in our small worlds, whether it's you living in in a gated community, as you might if you live in Los Angeles or something, or because you are in the echo chamber of your own digital world online. How do we bridge that? How do we step into the shoes of other people? Well, I think in practical terms, there's a long-term solution to that, and that's empathy education. Kids should be learning to um, step into the shoes of others, and there are fantastic programs around which do that, such as Roots of Empathy, which brings a baby into the classroom and the kids sit around the baby and they start talking about the baby, why is she crying, why is she laughing, what is she's thinking and feeling. That's all about trying to step out of yourself. And that's part of the solution to the century of the self, in a way. We need to make a bridge from the individual um, to the collective. In other practical terms, we need a mass wave of dialogues going on. Um, Of course, we have models such as interfaith dialogues. But the problem with interfaith dialogues, is they bring people together from different religions to talk about what they disagree about, which is religion. Um, I spent several years running an organization called the Oxford Muse to create conversations between strangers. We get, for example, 100 CEOs sitting sitting opposite 100 homeless people. And we do the opposite of speed dating. Instead of talking for two minutes, you talk for two hours. And we put menus of conversation on the table, uh, which have questions on there about questions like, What have you learned about the different varieties of love in your life? Or in what ways would you like to be more courageous? It's about creating human connection. This is what organisations like the Eden Project are trying to do through the big lunch. If we don't have that mass conversational culture developing, which is not that hard to do, then the divides are not going to be bridged. We need face-to-face conversation looking the other in the eye.
0: That's great. Thank you. Um, I'm going to open up the floor uh, to the audience.
2: Um, I was wondering how you balance the desire to get everyone more political and a political recklessness that makes people vote on things like Brexit without really thinking about it in that kind of, yeah, I'll just do it sort of attitude, where afterwards they say, I didn't think it would actually work or I didn't really know about it, um, and how you temper the two approaches to seizing kind of political movement.
1: Right, exactly. So you might think of Brexit as, wow, a seize the day moment. And, of course, that's what it was. People wanted to reject the system no matter what really was on offer. They wanted to reject something. It didn't have to be a referendum. It could have been something else. There would have been an equal rejection of the status quo. That, of course, was seizing the day in a certain way. It wasn't, though, the full whack of carpe diem politics with all those elements of opportunity and hedonism and spontaneity and presence on a mass scale. The difference between them, between, say, a social movement which speaks to the spirit of Horace and us seizing an opportunity at a particular moment like a referendum is that social movements educate us politically. They engage us in communities with different people. They are schools of learning about the art of politics. And so these are very different approaches to seizing the day. And there's nothing virtuous necessarily about the idea of carpe diem itself. I mean any philosophy which has freedom at its center has to ask the question, well what are the limits of that freedom? How it might damage others? Jean-Paul Sartre famously wrote a, a preface to Franz Fanon's book, The Wretched of the Earth and in it he advised Algerian independence fighters to pick up a gun and shoot the first Frenchman that you see. Now there's an ethical question there right? of What are the limits on freedom? Um, And it's something I struggled with writing this book about, Carpe Diem Regain, which is how do you inject an ethics into an individualistic philosophy of agency? And I think you need to draw on John Stuart Mill and think about seizing the day in a way that doesn't encroach on uh, the liberties of others. We need to draw on economists like Amartya Sen and his capabilities approach where we should be trying to create, seize the day opportunities for others, whether it's you know, people living in Ghana or in the north of England.
0: Well, I suppose it can, to answer your question, so if I understand your question rightly, it was how, you know, you, you, we want people to be politically engaged, but how do you make sure that there is the right level of information um, to enable them to do that? And in your, in your book, even though the carpe politics sounds like it was all very kind of today, you say there's a lot of organising that goes on behind the scenes to get to the point where we are changing The paradigms, right? When the burning wall came down, that wasn't just because there were some Mm -hmm. carnivals on the street the days and the weeks before. It was it was a sustained growth of momentum that led to a political movement.
1: Right, and I think what we need there is what might call prepared spontaneity. (laughs) It sounds like a contradiction in terms, right? And there was a famous photograph taken of Picasso in nineteen forty-nine called Picasso draws a centaur in the air. And he'd been given an electric pen with a little light on the end. And he was, the photograph was taken in a darkened room. The shutter was kept open. And he draws a centaur very quickly. And you see it in front of him. And then it disappears. It was a spontaneous moment of artistic expression, perhaps the most spontaneous in the 20th century. But it didn't come out of nowhere. Of course, Picasso had trained. He had studied classical drawing in Madrid, in Barcelona. He'd spent days, weeks, months tramping through the Prado and studying his masters, Goya Velasquez, that spontaneity came out of preparation, just as the spontaneity of jazz musicians comes out of a structure. And equally, thinking of the political movements in Spain, for example, the 15M Podemos, has been based on neighborhood organizing in cities like Madrid and Barcelona that's been going on since the 1970s. Um, We need those long traditions in a way of organizing. In fact, Occupy itself had much more organizing than people realise. In fact, a lot of, sort of green radicals and anarchists were at the 16 Beaver Street uh, art rooms in Manhattan organizing mm. what looked like a very spontaneous protest. In fact, they didn't originally want to um, go and have their protest in uh, Zuccotti Park. They wanted to be somewhere else, but it was cornered off by the police at the last moment, but they had five other plans up their sleeves, and off they went, and we need that prepared spontaneity.
0: Um, there was a question, the lady here. Um, off the back of what we're talking about in terms of how do we kind of control what it is that we're seizing. So, for example, you've talked a lot about Occupy. Occupy got a lot of criticism for splintering because it was almost like through occupying Wall Street it became Occupy Housing, Occupy Living. So how do you maintain focus if you're trying to see something and then you see another opportunity and how can it help build the momentum of a social movement?
1: Yeah. I, th- I think that that's really about having proposals. That if you do occupy everything and demand nothing, what is holding you together apart from community? I mean, it's, it is a fantastic thing to be involved in something like that and where creches develop and people are doing little education circles and, and things like that. But that isn't enough to sustain people. In a way, it goes back to a very deep aspect of the human condition, Which is that happiness, for want of a better word, it's not a word that I like or often use, is not just about having a nice time. And it's not just about being in the present moment and enjoying yourself. That human beings thrive on having causes, ambitions, goals. Nietzsche said, he who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. We need things to get us out of bed in the morning. For Marie Curie, it was doing research on radiation, which kept it going for 40 years. But for other people, particularly in politics, they need to have something that galvanizes them and something very clear to know a transcendent transcendental, something beyond the self, which is really something around which they can concentrate their minds. And I think that's partly what happened to Occupy. It wasn't clear what should happen next. Should it be about housing? Should it be about anti-corporate action? Um, and then, of course, it splintered
3: stood for local election last year and we marched out in rain and sun we knocked on doors we talked to people if apathy had been on the ballot it would have won in a landslide it was about 69 percent apathy Um, i'm also now working in a communications capacity for the uh, general election we're running into the same sort of problem is is that it's great to talk about seizing the day and it's not, and we didn't stick behind our screens. We went on doors, knocked on doors, talked to people, said, what is it that you're interested in? What is it that you care about? We tried to offer them solutions. One of the problems is, is that I think people have lost faith. And they have lost faith in the ability of politics to change their lives and to do anything particularly positive. Your graph actually didn't shock me because it, based upon the people – who I've spoken to in my campaigning capacity, that seems to be an impression not just of the young, but also of the old. And they tend to retreat to certainties, such as, you know, well, Theresa May is the the least bad of a bad bunch, or something along those lines. How do we put a defibrillator on that sort of scenario? How do we shock it out of its complacency? How do we seize the day and make it revive somehow that people's faith, it's hard to really work on people's faith?
1: Yeah, I think it depends on the political context. In a country like Britain, it means what you have to do is ditch the traditional political parties. You have to form something different because no one is going to have faith, I think, in the long term. And I don't think the existing parties really have long-term sustainability behind them, even though it looks like that. I mean, I'm part of a political group which formed uh, where I live in Oxford after the uh, Brexit referendum. And we've had enormous debates amongst people who are very engaged in politics, a lot of environmental writers, campaigners for Oxford and well-known uh, thinkers about democracy and so on. Um, and we're basically divided between those who want to try and start something new, like Podemos style, and those who want to try and galvanize the existing system and try and help us overcome apathy, but in the context of what already exists. And I think part of the problem there is that there's not a lot of faith, not only in the traditional system, but in the idea that a country like Britain can be a country powered by social movements that change things. And then I think has to go, that has to do with an old story we've been told ever since I studied O-Level history in the 1980s, which is that if it's a choice between reform and revolution, well, the, the Brits basically go for reform. The 1832 Reform Act, the 1867 Act, and so on. But then when I left high school and I started studying British social and cultural history, I realized i have been sold a lie. In fact, there's another story about British political history, which is the story of the diggers and the levellers in the 17th century of the machine breakers in the early 19th century, of the chartists in the 1840s and 1830s, of the suffragettes in the early 20th century, um, of the trade union movement itself, um, and of course of the anti capitalist protests of the noughties, that if we believe we can be carpe diem activists, we can become carpe diem activists. If any of you were here about uh, a month ago, there was a talk by the economist Kate Rayworth about her book, Donut Economics. One of the things she said was that students who study rational economic, self-interested rational economic man after time become more self-interested. Okay? And equally, if we keep telling ourselves that we are a reformist society, that we are only working within the system, then that is how it will remain. But if we tell ourselves that there is actually a radical tradition that we can tap into it 's not only the French who will stand in front of a jean paul Sartre in a gathering of five thousand people, then we might start doing that too
2: thank you i, I 'm interested in in bad behavior um, and i 'm going to use this through the lens of the food bank movement, which i 've been uh, closely uh, alongside. Uh, And and there's two sorts of bad behaviour. The one is, if you have a disorderly movement, you get bad behaviour within the movement. People who um, resent any kind of rules, even those that the movement itself tries to impose, to have that purpose and communicate a simple message, there has to be some kind of order in a disorganised movement and then you get the people who don't like that. But the other thing is um, the kind of equal and opposite reaction. So as food banks have tried to humanise the poor, we've seen a dehumanisation of the poor um, coming out of um, various elites who have emphasised the fecklessness and the undeserving nature of charity. Um, and there's a, a sort of another one which is sexual bad behavior. Um, Tahrir Square was a place became, which became a place where a woman was very unsafe indeed. I don't know where that fits in my framework. Thank you. Yeah. I, so there's a problem of bad behavior,
1: destructiveness in anything that has that kind of spontaneous energy. And it could be the things like sexual bad behaviour to violence against property, for example, not just violence against people. Um, I think it's very difficult to control that. But let me just step back a bit and say something about anarchist political theory, which is actually relevant to the answer to this question, I think. There's basically two ways of thinking about anarchism. People think of traditionally The first few, which is anarchy as revolutionary violence of blowing up Tsars in the 19th century or the black bloc protesters in the anti-capitalist movements in Seattle and Genoa and so on. Very destructive forces. There is another anarchist tradition from the 19th century which goes back to writers such as Prince Peter Kropotkin, the great geographer, um, more recent years the anarchist writer Colin Ward who died a few years ago. And that's anarchy as a theory of social organization. People who take that view of anarchism say that the classic anarchist organizations are things like the Royal National Lifeboat Institution. In fact, Kropotkin himself in the 19th century says that was the ultimate anarchist organization because it was voluntary, it was non-hierarchical, it was local, and they were doing something really important, which was rescuing people without big business and without the state. And I think what one finds in, I think, the best developed radical social movements today is that Attitude of anarchy is a form of social organization. Yes, there's an element of destructiveness, but there's a much more organization than you think going on. So Occupy and the indignados in Spain had to deal with huge numbers of people that they didn't expect, but they had great methods for dealing with that and creating order. One of them was the people's mic method where the person at the front said what they were going to say and that they, their message was passed down sentence by sentence to people right down the back. Okay? And everybody felt involved. You need those methodologies in order, I think, to um, galvanize the communities in which you are creating. Um, this is not easy stuff to do, but in fact, I think a lot of the answers of how to do it lie in anarchist traditions.
0: Can we pick up on a point that you, you, um, which we were just talking about earlier? So in the examples that you were giving, the anarchists, for want of a better word, on social movements are organised, but they seem to be working outside of the system. And yet one of the barriers, you have said, to Carpe and politics is being outside of the system.
1: Yeah, and I've shifted my thinking about anarchism. I was very interested in the 1990s, and over time I've become more convinced of the need for those kinds of organisations to be engaging with the state. And it's a dance, it's a difficult dance, as we've seen with Podemos. You know, you get co-opted by the state. What are you going to do? How much are you going to be involved? The key, I think, is to maintaining strong grassroots activists. This is what radical movements have done in Bolivia and Ecuador very successfully. Um, It's having both those, having a a grassroots, more anarchist-style face and also having a face towards the state and knowing when to walk um, away from it. I mean, ultimately, I think we're all going to be walking away from the state in the end, because I think that the state is in decline and will not survive. I mean, in the long durée, the nation-state has only been around for a couple of centuries. Um, even at the birth, uh, beginning of the First World War, Europe was mostly monarchies and empires and, and, and so on. Um, and I don't think it's going to last. Um, that seems unlikely. Um, it sounds like science fiction. I think we are shifting to... Uh, Revival of the Renaissance city-state in new form. Mm -hmm. Um, By 2030, around half the people in the world will be living in megacities of over 5 or 10 million people. Tokyo, Nagoya, Osaka, 80 million people. It's like one big city where the rest of Japan is the suburbs. Mm -hmm. And this is sort of going off on a slight tangent, but as our economies change, cities are going to become much more powerful and the nation-state is going to become weaker. Think of the way energy is being organized if and this is a bit of an if, energy becomes something which is produced and consumed much more locally, for example, through microgeneration grids and is less centralised than it is today, and this is partly what's happening because of renewables, we're going to see a shift towards localism and that's going to reinforce the city-state. And it's going to be like, you know, London and Manchester are going to be like Florence and Pisa. You know? We're still looking about 100 years from now. Yeah. But I think that's okay. the way I try and look at it.
0: Well, and that certainly chimes with a lot of the work that the RSA does, where we see much more innovation happening at a city level. Um, from final questions, this gentleman here. Anyone else? Put your hand up now for speak And this lady here.
4: Patrick McIndoch. I wonder if there are two things going on here. Firstly, the digital age is empowering everybody to be individually... Uh, powerful and therefore politics is being sidelined because of our connectivity but on the other hand big data blockchains algorithmic formula actually is them subliminally or deliberately manipulating us in nefarious ways that we don't really understand but we're beginning to see patterns of uh, and whether these two conflicting things, I I mean, I'm very confused about it, but I I wonder if you could make some comment on it.
1: Tell me more about why you're confused.
4: I'm confused because I can see that in the sort of Brexit-Trump situation, um, there was a significant um, protest about the elite, and there was the power within everybody to look at the data and say, I just don't believe any of this lot, and so therefore, sod it, I just don't care, and I'm not sure I really... It matters what I vote for anymore. So, to some extent, P.L.S.T.L. Well, uh, and then on the yeah. other hand, I can clearly see that uh, big data blockchains and, uh, is, is manipulating us in very, very strange ways that we don't understand, but it's clearly happening. Okay. I mean, I think that... Data, in general,
1: is both sort of dangerous and irrelevant. Dangerous in the sense that we do get manipulated, and of course it's part of that big data which is creating those digital silos where we're only hearing the voices of people like us. And on some other level, and this isn't quite an answer to the question, but this is what comes to mind, is that we can be presented with data, but it doesn't change what we do. This is what we've learned about climate change, of course, that you can give people all the facts in the world about what is happening, but if you are locked into your world views about, you know, which is about denial, for example, of climate change, not much is going to shift you except a conversation with a person. And that's why the art of conversation is so important. And in a way, one might say that my hope is that the balance to the emergence of big data I hope, is going to be the emergence of big conversation. And partly that's required, of course, because part of big data is also linked to issues such as automation, for example. And one of the big questions, of course, in the future of economic organization is, is there going to be space for us? Um, And are we going to take advantage of the fact that the comparative advantage of the human being is our capacity to make relationships? Um, Are we going to fill that space Unfortunately, I think what is happening and what will probably happen because of automation is an increasing decline of the middle class. Um, The middle class is going to be increasingly hollowed out as it has been in countries like Argentina. And this is problematic for democracy, bringing back to the original question, because in human history, almost no society has been able to create a sustained, healthy, democratic society without a strong middle class. It just doesn't happen. I spent 15 years studying Latin America and the big problem with Latin America is you didn't really have the emergence of middle classes in most countries and you ended up with a feudal politics, the very rich and the very poor and this is what we're going back today. We're going back to a feudal populism which is going to live itself out in those city-states of the future.
0: And then our final question down here, please. Um, do you think that the one of the barriers to change and also sort of Harking back to that graph it, and sort of what's the understanding of democracy, um, that one of the bar- big barriers is the sort of first past the post voting system.
1: Okay, um, I'm Australian, so I have a natural dislike of the first past the post <laughs> system. We've written <positioned> it like <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, I think it's. I think that you know, an electoral reform to you know, some single transferable vote or whatever it happens to be is just going to be like putting a, a little tiny plaster, a little tiny Band-Aid on a very big wound. It will keep the representative system going for a while, but there are larger forces going on, like the shifting nature of the economy and other global forces, migration, all sorts of things, which I don't think are going to sustain the system. And whether you look at countries that have PR and those which don't, Even a country like the Netherlands, which of course has a much more um, representative system in 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 terms of system, although it's been able to survive for the moment the rise of the right, I'm not sure it's going to be able to in the long term. And even though it has an incredible history of tolerance, going back to Spinoza in the 17th century, um, I don't think that tolerance history and culture is going to be enough to sustain it. So I personally am in favor of a electoral reform in this country, because I think it's going to be one of the ways to shift us towards something like Podemos. Um, it's going to be one of the steps towards it. I hope that we do that, but I don't think it's going to be a long-term solution without the carpe Diem politics, which is going to, I think, ignite and create new kinds of movement.
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that's all we've got time for. I'd like to give you a big round of applause to Roman. Copies of Roman's book are outside. I'm sure he'll like to sign one for you if you're it. Thank you for coming and talking to us. It was a massive topic. Um, we covered lots of grounds and um, we wish you luck with, uh, with promoting it. it It's kind of more and more massive. Yes. <laughs> is it? Well, <laughs> democracy is a big one. Thank you, ladies Thank and gentlemen. You. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go? Just visit our website, the RSA.org, and follow the links to the RSA Vision mobile app.